Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and it's election week in America. Former Vice President Joe Biden is poised for victory in the presidential race, which would put an end to the administration of President Donald Trump. The Trump campaign has mounted a barrage of legal challenges to contest the vote in several key battleground states, where ballots are still being counted and the race remains tight. For our election week episode, I'm joined by Ellie Honig. He's a CNN legal analyst who served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York for more than eight years. He's also the author of an upcoming book on Attorney General William Barr, titled Hatchet Man, which is set to be published next summer. I called up Ellie on Friday morning to discuss the claims of election fraud, whether the legal challenges being put forward by the Trump campaign stand a chance, what we can expect from the next few months, and the legal fate of President Donald Trump should he leave the White House in January. Ellie Honig is a former federal and state prosecutor and now a CNN legal analyst. Ellie, thank you for joining us. Happy election week. Happy election week, maybe going into weeks, plural. Who knows? But happy to be with you. <laughs> I appreciate you actually making the time. I know it's an extremely busy week and day. Yeah. Uh, I suppose my first question should be, how are you doing? How is your heart rate? And how are your <laughs> sleep patterns? I'm doing fine. I'm doing really well. Um, I, I enjoy this. I don't know. Maybe I'm Maybe I'm crazy, but... I find this fascinating. Uh, I mean, this is why you're in the, the legal business, the media business. Our, our system is being challenged and tested in ways that are sort of, you know, your law school hypotheticals. What if this? What if that? And I find it invigorating and, and really interesting. Um, and I think we are heading quickly, well, not quickly, but soon to a resolution of this. But I think even once a winner is sort of acknowledged, widely acknowledged. I, I don't think we're done yet. I think President Trump is going to continue to fight. And I think we're going to have more fascinating challenges arise in the coming weeks. Well, I'm, I'm glad I scored with such an optimistic guest. Let's <laughs> uh, let's get into some of those uh, hypotheticals. Uh, now, the this morning, Joe Biden overtook Trump in the vote count in Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, Decision Desk HQ, which is one of the groups that calls uh, elections, has called the state and the race for Joe Biden. And I think we can expect the news networks to follow suit at some point today. Mm -hmm. The Trump campaign is predictably not planning on accepting the results. And I say predictably because anyone who has watched Donald Trump over the course of his career, his presidency, even the last few months, knows that he doesn't really tend to concede defeat on things. Now he is claiming that the election is being stolen from him through widespread election fraud, for which there is, from my perspective, kind of comically little in the way of evidence to support. What is your view on the president's election fraud claims? He's got nothing. He's got nothing. Um, look, 
One of the great things about our court system is you need proof. You can't just go into the court system with a tweet. You can't just go into the court system with a conspiracy theory, with something you saw on TV or heard somebody, many people are, are saying. You need proof. And we're seeing, with one exception that I'll get to in a minute, Aiden, with the, with the exception of the Pennsylvania extended deadline case, every other lawsuit that the Trump organization is filing is completely frivolous or worse. And if you want proof of that, look at how quickly they're getting kicked out of court and dismissed. I mean, the Georgia lawsuit lasted barely 24 hours. Their whole theory was, oh, we've, we believe there's this stack of 53 ballots, as if 53 ballots is going to swing anything, that actually arrived late but are being counted. One witness who works for the Georgia you know, Board of Elections or whatever, the County Board of Elections said, no, those ballots arrived on time, case dismissed. You know, other side, what do you have to say? They just had their hands you know, in their pockets, they had nothing to say. The Michigan case was just sort of these vague, we're hearing in the atmosphere that things are unkosher here. And that case is gone too. I mean, it's pretty rare to see judges toss cases the day after they're filed. But I think there's a strong statement being made there. The Pennsylvania case um, has some merit constitutionally and could actually result in a win for the Republicans, but it's almost certainly not going to be enough. So, so just for background here, the Pennsylvania state legislature said all mail-in ballots have to be received by November 3rd, election day, at, I think 8 p.m. The Su Pennsylvania Supreme Court then said, no, because of COVID, we think there needs to be extra time until November 6th. Now there's a good legitimate constitutional question about who gets to make that decision. Is it the legislature's decision, which the constitution does seem to say, or does the Supreme Court have the right on its own to come in and extend that deadline? The counter argument is, well, the legislature doesn't operate in a vacuum. It's always subject to um, regulation or, or you know, uh, by the state Supreme Court. The US Supreme Court already has that case. They've declined to expedite it, uh, but they could decide it. But here's the thing. It's only going to matter if A, Pennsylvania itself is decisive. And it's looking more and more like with Biden leading in all these remaining key states, he will have a cushion of more than Pennsylvania's electoral votes. And B, if somehow Pennsylvania um, on its own becomes decisive, the number of votes at issue has to be larger than the, the margin. And it's looking again, like Biden's going to have a large enough margin that the disputed ballots won't be able to swing it. So that one has legal merit, probably won't matter practically, but the rest of them are just straight up garbage. I mean, th that's what's so astonishing about this. I think it was predictable that Trump was going to challenge the results of the election. Now you have this barrage of legal claims that his team is making that uh, in an effort to cast aspersions on the integrity of the ballots. The I, I've tried looking for legitimate claims of election fraud and the, I mean, the most prominent ones uh, involved Sharpies being used on ballots, which uh, it, uh, the attorney general of the, the state that that was in said that there was no evidence that that invalidated the ballots. Right. There was in Michigan, there was the uh, there was the dump of votes, a tranche of votes where a one website said that 100 percent of them went to Joe Biden and that went viral. President Trump retweeted it and that has been cited still today as evidence of election fraud. And it was based on a typo made by the website that was reporting on this tranche of, of votes. So, uh, I mean, they ju it just seems so fundamentally silly and obvious to me, and I think to a lot of people that work in news, that most of the claims of election fraud that the Trump team is pushing are baseless. Mm -hmm. Now, that brings me to, you had top members of the Republican Party on air yesterday, from Lindsey Graham to Kevin McCarthy to Ted Cruz, 
actually backing the president on these claims. Does that worry you at all? Uh, it, it worries me a bit just because it, it so badly undermines public confidence and, and in the legitimacy of our processes. It, it worries me because it's an echo chamber. It, it's this whole, I hear, I'm hearing, people are saying, and it's almost like we used to say when I was a prosecutor, sometimes you'd have a defense lawyer who had nothing. His client was guilty. You had overwhelming proof. And they would just try to stand up in front of the jury and yell reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt over and over so many times. And we used to always get up on rebuttal and say, you can't make it so by merely yelling it over and over. You can't make it so by sheer repetition. But I think President Trump throughout his term has really challenged that. I mean, he he's tapping into sort of some of the basest, I think, instincts and perhaps fragilities of the human psychology by just repeating things endlessly. He says it. Fox News picks it up. He repeats it back. Lindsey Graham picks it up. He repeats it. It's like it's an echo chamber. And, and I think it's dangerous. Um, I think it is a complete abdication of constitutional duty to see what's happening with the rest of the Republican establishment. Most of the rest of the Republican establishment. They're falling into one of a few camps. There's the supporting the president's claims baselessly, the Lindsey Grahams, which is a disgrace and should go in their obituary. There's the silence, just the scared silence, which is also nearly as much of a shame. And then there's the sort of mild rebuke, the, well, we need to count all the votes. We need to let things play out, which I guess is better than the other two. But what we're really not seeing is what Republicans need to be saying. Some who are out of office now are saying, which is, this is unacceptable. This is not the way our system works. And, and I, I retweeted out this morning a quote from, he's not a national figure, but, a, but, a, but the, one of the leading Republican lawmakers here in the state of New Jersey, where I live, came out and said what needs to be said, which is, I'm paraphrasing, this is unacceptable. This is not how our system works. This is dangerous. And, and more Republican lawmakers and leaders need to be out there and saying this. And by the way, enough of this crap with, oh, I was I was in, on the inside, but I was silently working to undermine this. Like enough of the anonymous, enough of the mm. people coming out later saying, I didn't, you know, I was, I, I was really trying to sabotage things from the inside. Speak up now. Like, I, can we all just agree, like no more of these people emerging later <laughs> claiming, claiming they were, they were good guys on the inside. I mean, enough of that. It's too late for that. I, I, I recall uh, not only Miles Taylor, who uh, was revealed to be anonymous, but also John Cornyn, who did an interview uh, a few weeks before the election uh, and said that he had you know, in private opposed some of the things that President Donald Trump had done during his administration, um, which is a curious thing to do uh, just a few weeks before an election that it appears your candidate is set to lose. Right. Well, um, I think that's why, that's why right? They, they, yeah, they, you know, exactly. It's not hard to see that writing on the wall. Well, so what I find so uh, fascinating about this, and I'm not a, a legal expert like you are, but it does seem to me like these uh, throwing out these, you know, basically just throwing everything at the wall and seeing if any of it sticks is sort of desperate and doesn't seem like it has any chance of success. Mm -hmm. it, but I do agree that it's it does seem like if you have the president saying that this election was stolen from him, if you have that opinion being validated by Fox News and top leadership in the Republican Party, it, it, uh, nearly 70 million people have voted for this guy. Yep. That could create a really dangerous climate in the next few months. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I'm, I'm optimistic to this point, and I wrote a piece about this earlier today, um, 
look, whether whether you are a Biden supporter or a Trump supporter and whether you're celebrating or, or, or sort of taking solace right now, it's a good thing that thus far there has not been violence. There have not been armed lines of, you know, militia members, things that we feared. Um, mm. We've not seen a collapse of our system. We've not seen um, out outbreaks of that kind of thing. But you, I agree that the fear is they're setting the table for this and people listen to our leaders. Um, and, and that's why we need more people, more Republicans coming out saying this is not OK. The more people, the more media that support Donald Trump in these baseless claims, in these lawless attacks. Yeah, look, to me, it's almost a matter of time before somebody does something crazy and dangerous. And, and I do fear for that. And the longer this goes on and the longer it takes the president and his enablers to accept the result, the more the chances of that are. And, and I, I do worry about that. I, I, I you know, it, it looked, I was pleased that when the president came out at 2.20 in the morning on the night of, you know, I guess it was technically November 4th, but um, as the results were coming in and started making these crazy statements, mostly we greeted him with a shrug. Mostly people ignored him or just sort of, eh, that's Trump being Trump. But it's getting more and more dangerous um, as he does this. I think the speech that he made last night from the White House was one of the um, most irresponsible uh, and dangerous things that I've ever seen from from a president. And I, and I fear that this could gain momentum because it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And you see the president and Don Jr. out there railing about it. And to a dismaying extent, people are picking up on it and echoing it. So look, I, I think it's the responsibility of everybody else to push back, Democrat, Republican, nonpartisan, whatever you may be. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen a few reports that Republicans are sort of or at least in the Trump White House are looking for a James Baker to lead their challenge. Now, Baker led yeah. the political and legal team during the Florida recount in 2000 that resulted in George W. Bush's victory. Uh, aside from Trump's James Baker being Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> is this year anything like 2000? No, it's not. I mean, look, I wish they had a James Baker because James Baker at least is a responsible uh, you know, respectable lawyer who could come up with a coherent strategy. But and to be honest, he, he came yeah. out and criticized their their claims this time around. Yeah, I mean, because they're all over the map and they're scattershot. And and look, Rudy Giuliani is gone. I mean, I, it doesn't, I, 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 I've said before, as an SDNY alum, and Rudy, of course, ran that office in the 80s, well before I was there, but we used to look at him and respect him and, and admire him. And we were proud of the fact that he was an SDNY alum. I mean, forget about it. He's a He's a shame and a disgrace. I mean, mention Rudy Giuliani to any SDN. Do a little experiment if you meet an SDNY alum. Mention Rudy Giuliani and just watch their face and they will gr <laughs> grimace or wince 90% uh, of the time. Um, he's he's lost it. And I don't, I don't mean that in terms of his mental acuity. I just mean it in terms of his reasonableness. Um, mm. He's way over the line. But let me say this. This is important to understand. I think there's a misimpression about what happened and what the Supreme Court did in the year 2000. Two, two things. Number one, you cannot, quote, take a case to the Supreme Court. Donald Trump keeps saying, we're taking this to the Supreme Court. Mm. That is not the way it works. First of all, it's up to the Supreme Court if they will take your case. That's what we the, the term is certiorari, but they have to vote to take your case. They do not take over 95% of the cases presented to them. Also, you can't go directly to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can only hear cases. There is original jurisdiction for a state versus a state and cases involving ambassadors. None of that applies here. 
beyond those cases, you have to come up through the lower federal courts or the state Supreme Courts. You have to have a legal claim. You can't just go in there and yell fraud, fraud, fraud. And you have to have some facts. The other thing is the Supreme Court, and if you, if you look back at 2000, that case, Bush versus Gore, made its way up through the Florida Supreme Court. The other thing is there's this misimpression that the Supreme Court in 2000 pointed at George Bush and said, you win, and pointed at Al Gore and said, you lose. They did not do that. The effect of their ruling was to end the recount, and that had the effect of, of clinching it for George W. Bush. But the Supreme Court does not name a winner, does not name a loser. What they can do is say, let's take the Pennsylvania case, for example. The Supreme Court could well say, we find that that extension from November 3rd to November 6th by the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court was unconstitutional. Hence, those ballots do not count. That could have the effect of swinging Pennsylvania, very unlikely, which could have the effect of swinging the election, also very, very unlikely. But that's what they can do. They rule on specific cases or controversies. They do not appoint or name a winner. Yeah, now that's that's something that I saw you comment on yesterday. A Trump campaign legal advisor was on air and made a fairly astonishing claim. She said that the campaign is waiting for the Supreme Court to step in and yeah. do something about the race. Right. And she specifically named Trump's newly appointed uh, Supreme Court justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah. The, the Supreme Court, obviously, they decide cases, as you said. Do you get the sense that they're going to eventually play any role in this election, whether it's uh, you know the, the Pennsylvania challenge making it all the way up to the Supreme Court? And if it does, do you have any sense of which way they would rule? Yeah. So let me say this. Um, yeah. Not only can you not take a case to the Supreme Court, they <laughs> sure as hell do not step in. They don't knock mm. on your door and go, hi, we they don't like intervene. this case. Um, <laughs> yeah, it does not work that way. Um, look, I do think the Supreme Court may well rule on the Pennsylvania case. And I do think if they do, they may well rule in favor of Republicans and toss those ballots that arrived in the three days. If you sort of break it down, there are already three justices who've made very clear they're going to go that way. That's Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. I think Kavanaugh has left breadcrumbs in his other rulings that he is very likely to go that way. Amy Coney Barrett actually has an interesting decision to make if a case does come to them, uh, which is, will she recuse herself, meaning take herself off the mm. case? I think she probably should, not because she's new, not because Trump appointed her. You can stay on a case where the president has appointed you. That's in the Nixon case. Uh, three of the four justices he appointed stayed on the case. In, in Paula Jones versus Bill Clinton, he Bill Clinton had appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer. They both stayed on the case. But because of the president's public comments, three days before he appointed, nominated Amy Coney Barrett, he said publicly, we need nine. We need nine justices because this election may end up in them. I mean, that creates a conflict of interest. It's not Amy Coney Barrett's fault. It's the president's fault. That said, I think she's likely to stay on a case and may well rule in his favor. But it's only going to swing the election in those very narrow circumstances I said. Do I think the Supreme Court ultimately beyond the possibility of Pennsylvania? I don't see it unless unless the Trump folks come up with a legal case and factual support that is broad enough to invalidate enough votes. Um, and I don't see that happening. And, and this is watch what happens in the next several hours very carefully, because, look, it looks like Joe Biden's going to win. That seems fairly clear. But the margin is going to matter here. If mm. Joe Biden wins and it's a one state margin, Pennsylvania being the, the biggest remaining electoral prize, it's it's very difficult to overturn one state. It's almost impossible to overturn two. And then the margins matter. And keep in mind, Florida in 2000 was mind-bogglingly close. I mean, 530-something votes. That's what high school elections get, get decided by that. <laughs> um, 
And if the margin in Pennsylvania is six figures, forget it. You're not flipping that. And if, if, if it goes the way it looks like things are going in Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, or some combination of those go for Joe Biden, then it doesn't matter. Pennsylvania is not going to flip the result and they're going to be out of options. So the margin is really going to be important here too. Mm. I was watching Lou Dobbs last night on Fox oh, business because I am a masochist. Yeah. <laughs> and he was interviewing Rick Grinnell, who served as Trump's acting director of national intelligence and is now uh, apparently part of the Trump campaign's efforts to challenge the results. Mm-hmm. It, Dobbs got pretty furious that the Justice Department was not intervening in the election to stop what he referred to as a political crime. You are writing a book about Attorney General uh, William Barr. Is that something that Barr would do? Like, how much can the Attorney General do at this point to intervene in the election? Let me answer that. Would he do it? Yes. Can he do it? No. I mean, look, Bill Barr, and one of the main things I'm writing about in my book is that Bill Barr has shown us, Bill Barr's a liar. I mean, I just say it in the book. Like I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to mince words and say, oh, he has misstated the truth. He's a liar. And he has, he has bent the facts and he had like to, to a, an embarrassing degree for a federal prosecutor that never mind the nation's top federal prosecutor. And he has twisted and contorted the law, but there's only so much he can do. He can't fabricate facts. He can't, He can't conjure something out of thin air. I mean, he can take, for example, the facts as found by Robert Mueller and minimize them and selectively omit and selectively include and then come to a bogus legal conclusion. But he can't just create this massive, and it would have to be massive voter fraud. And look, let me say this, just a quick footnote. Voter fraud happens. I mean, how could it not when there's hundreds of millions of ballots cast in, in every presidential election and smaller numbers, but millions cast in other elections. I mean, it happens, but in such tiny numbers that it that it just doesn't swing anything. And there's just no evidence of massive voter fraud. They've tried, and Barr has tried with his rhetoric. He's tried to echo the president's rhetoric about the dangers of voter fraud. And he's, you know, done announcements through DOJ that violate DOJ practice and policy. Like when he announced this thing about a handful of ballots, nine ballots in Pennsylvania, which then they had to change to seven ballots and ended up not being a criminal thing and ended up being really a nothing. He's tried to support the public narrative, but in terms of something to go into court with, it just doesn't exist. And so I, I don't think Bill Barr can, he cannot just come up with some facts that, sh- that, that uh, you know, to invent there being massive voter fraud. What can Bill Barr do? He can do a couple of things. One, if a case ends up in the courts, he can lend DOJ's heft, its brief, its legal position. He can say, we support the president. We believe he's correct on the law. For example, in the Pennsylvania case, he could weigh in and say, we DOJ believe that that extension was unconstitutionally granted. That won't decide the case, but you'd sure as hell rather have DOJ on your side than against you. Um, He also can... Um, you know, in, instruct his U.S. attorneys to be on the lookout for voter fraud. And I don't have a problem with that if they what they find is legitimate, um, legitimately voter fraud and significant enough to make a difference, but it just ain't there. And so I think what Bill Barr has done is lend all the help he's capable of lending to ginning up this false narrative through his public statements and his interviews and his his bending of policy to allow DOJ to make announcements like we saw in the Pennsylvania nine ballot, seven ballot case. But what he cannot do is just change reality enough to go into court and, and give it teeth. 
Now, just to, to, to move away from the election briefly and look at William Barr, I think a lot of people who aren't really following the Justice Department, aren't legal experts such as yourself, don't have a really clear idea of what his role has been in the final years of the Trump presidency. Could you give us a little breakdown of what kind of attorney general he's been? Yeah, Bill Barr has been not, not just different in degree from his prior predecessors, but different in kind from his predecessors. He has done things that no AG of any administration would even think of. And by the way, I, I should say, I worked for DOJ for eight and change years, and it almost broke down exactly evenly. Four years under the George W. Bush administration, where, where I served under two AGs, Alberto Gonzalez, John Ashcroft, and, and four of those years under the Obama administration with Eric Holder as the AG. I never interacted directly with the AGs. That wasn't my job, but I was part of DOJ. Um, in the following respects, you may not like as a line assistant, like I was, someone doing trials in the, in the trenches of the Southern District of New York, you might not like the policy initiatives of an attorney general. I, I, I remember Alberto Gonzalez very early in my term came to New York and gave his sort of stump speech that he was giving around the country. And he talked about the importance of cracking down on obscenity crimes. And we all, I mean, you could hear the, the sort of tittering happening in the room. Like you're telling a bunch of Manhattan federal prosecutors who do terrorism cases and mob cases and massive fraud cases that we're going to be doing obscenity crimes. But you know what? No one ever really called, no one ever seriously considered Alberto Gonzalez a liar um, mm. or John Ashcroft or Eric Holder. And Bill Barr has been caught lying about everything from the Mueller report to the reasons for removing the head of my former office, the SDNY, Jeffrey Berman. You remember that, the Friday night firing mm -hmm. um, to his reasons for, you know, the things I said about the ballot case. He, he, he made up the details about these ballot cases that he talked about publicly. He has been caught lying over and over. That's number one. Number two is he has, people say, I, I hear people phrase it sometimes as he has allowed the Justice Department to be used as a political tool. I actually disagree with that characterization. It's not strong enough. He hasn't allowed it. He has used, he has affirmatively used the Justice Department as a political weapon for Donald Trump. I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. He intervened in two cases, Michael Flynn and Roger Stone, unprecedented, right? Look, you're the AG, you get to overrule your line prosecutors. I get it. And, and that is the way the hierarchical structure works. I've been overruled when I was a higher ranking person. I overruled people. But what two cases? DOJ prosecutes over 80,000 defendants a year. Bill Barr has been there about two years. So let's say 150,000 defendants have been prosecuted by DOJ. How many of those has Bill Barr come in and taken a conviction like they had in both the Roger Stone case and the Michael Flynn case, won a jury, won a, won a plea, and undermined it? In one case, seeking to throw out the conviction altogether, and the other undermining his own line prosecutors, who had been approved, by the way, through, pro through proper DOJ channels, and, and seeking a lower sentence, two cases out of 150,000. I mean, what are the odds of that? And it just happens to be two people who are the president's supporters, the president's associates. If they flipped, would could well have had damaging information against the president. I don't think there's any question about Roger Stone having had that. And yet Bill Barr jumps in on two cases out of 150,000. I mean, imagine, imagine if you laid out 150 cases and threw it through two darts and just happened to hit <laughs> those two, right? I mean, the odds, someone can do the odds. I think it's 150,000 times 150,000, which is, you know, who knows, millions. So Bill Barr, for those two reasons, that he has lied so many times and that he has used DOJ 
really to, to bail Donald Trump and try to bail Donald Trump out of so much trouble. Ukraine, by the way, impeachment, I would include in that as well. Um, that's what makes Bill Barr different in kind than any of, of his predecessors. And I believe the worst attorney general uh, we've ever had. Maybe there was somebody in the early 1800s who, who was equally horrible, but let, let's just say in, in modern history. And I think he's done really um, extensive damage to DOJ's credibility moving forward. So just, I mean, given that fairly scathing indictment of uh, William Barr's uh, tenure, yeah. I, I think a lot of people feared uh, initially Jeff Sessions when he got appointed uh, to be attorney general by Donald Trump. I think probably a little bit more than, than people did when William Barr got appointed. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you see William Barr as, being, as having been a worse attorney general than Jeff Sessions? Yes, way worse. And I'll tell you why. You're, you're exactly right, by the way. Um, when Bill Barr, I, I'm working on a piece of my book right now where I'm collecting quotes of people who, when Bill Barr was announced as the nominee, said, well, look, he's an institutionalist. He's a veteran. Yeah, he's part of the establishment right. of Republican right. and, politics. And then later on, ended up going on, you know, benders against him. And by the way, <laughs> I end that little segment with myself because it just so happens I was on CNN that day with Brooke Baldwin when the news came out. And I found I had a producer went back and found my quote and sent it to me. I don't have it in front of me, but I said, I said, I said something on that day, like, look, he, he's, uh, he seems credible and he seems um, established and he seems like an institutionalist. And I think it's a solid pick. And of course I end up writing this book. Um, <laughs> now we should have known better. And at that moment we didn't know, I didn't know, but we learned very quickly. He had written this audition memo where he was basically telling the president and the world unsolicited, hey man, I'm gonna take care of you on the Mueller case, which I write about extensively in the book. I think that was a big tell. Look, Jeff Sessions was a was a very bad attorney general. Um, his child separation policy is a disgrace and a shame and should be mentioned mm -hmm. in the first line of his obituary someday. Um, he was incompetent for the job. He has a racist history. Um, there were a lot of things wrong with Jeff Sessions, um, but I will say this. He showed that he's at least capable of doing the right thing. He recused himself off the Mueller investigation because he had been part of the Trump campaign. And that was uh, not the Mueller. It wasn't the Mueller investigation at the time. It was the Russia investigation. Mm. But, but that was the right thing to do because he was potentially involved with one of the parties um, in that investigation. So by, just by doing that, he showed at least me that he's at least capable, capable of doing the right thing ethically. Now, of course... Donald Trump to this day has not stopped excoriating him and humiliating him publicly. And by the way, one of the things I'll never understand is how Jeff Sessions held his head up while he's the sitting attorney general and the president's calling him mentally unfit and a coward and a dumb Southerner. These are all things the president called him and he just took it. I mean, he should have either pushed, fought back hard or resigned. But Jeff Sessions was, was, was a bad attorney general who, who advanced disgraceful law enforcement policies. But no, I think Barr ended up exceeding him in terms of um, lack of honesty, being a liar, and, and the way that he callously allowed the DOJ and used DOJ for political purposes. I think one of the saddest uh, developments in in the saga of Jeff, Jeff Sessions is when he was running against uh, oh, Tommy gosh, Tuberville, Tuberville. Yeah. in the in the primary and uh, and was cutting ads talking about how how much he was sort of in line with the MAGA agenda and and Trump would see <laughs> one occasionally and fire off a tweet saying how much he hated him. It was so um, pathetic. It was, so it was tough. He was, it was tough was to watch. Begging for Trump's <laughs> approval and Trump is yep. abusing him. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. So I, I think the. Let's assume that that President Trump is 
has not been reelected, as it does certainly seems to be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's also assume that he will be leaving the White House in January, making way for a Biden administration. I think a lot of liberals have this sort of fantasy that Trump is going to face legal consequences when he leaves office and becomes a private citizen. Uh, and I think a lot of people are looking towards the Southern District of New York. Do you have any idea of what, whether the president should be worried or whether or not he is going to be sort of free from legal consequences after he leaves office? He, he should be worried, but I, I think it's far from a sure thing that he will be criminally prosecuted. So let me break that down. On the one hand, I firmly believe, as do many, that he committed crimes while in office and and during the campaign. I believe he committed obstruction of justice of Robert Mueller's investigation. I believe he committed witness intimidation. Uh, I think there's a reasonable basis to investigate him for bribery, extortion, for soliciting foreign election aid relating to Ukraine. Um, I believe that there is ample evidence there to open and pursue a criminal investigation. And I think there's enough evidence there to charge him for obstruction of justice on, you know, just based off of the Mueller report. Also, there seems to be significant evidence still being developed by state authorities, and we should separate these, the Manhattan DA um, and the New York AG, about potential financial frauds, not relating to his role as president, but the Trump organization, uh, tax fraud and bank fraud and insurance fraud. Now, will he be prosecuted? This is a difficult decision because if you prosecute him federally, Imagine that. Imagine an actual indictment, United States of America v. Donald J. Trump. Count one charges this. You know, you are, if you charge him criminally as the new DOJ, you have to understand it's going to suck all the oxygen and all the attention and focus out of the room for the next year and a half until he gets tried. And, and, that and, and trial, is that, sorry for butting in, but would that be because it would be by the Biden administration attorney general leading that case? Yeah, I mean, it it would be because, A, it's a prosecution of a former president, which has never happened before, and B, because there will be, it will be perceived as vindictive or whatever by Mm -hmm. the Biden administration. So that's, that's, you, you have to think hard about that. If you're the next attorney general, you know, he certainly deserves a prosecution based on, if nothing else, obstruction of justice and arguably other things. But if you're going to bring that case, get ready. That is going to just you know, crowd out the field from anything else you're trying to accomplish or pursue in terms of public attention. The other thing is, I think we are just sort of inherently resistant to this idea of slapping handcuffs on the former president, right? It it just doesn't Mm. feel like what we do here in America. It's what we see in other countries with less stable democracy or no democracy or less stable governments. And I think we Americans just are a little bit squeamish about that possibility. So now look, I know, again, I can already hear the chorus of people saying, but he has to be charged. There has to be accountability. He can't get away with it. I get that too. I do. And I think the new administration, if it's a Biden administration, has a very difficult decision to make. What do we do here? I mean, look, there are sort of midway solutions. You can you can have Congress. You can appoint some sort of, whether it's through Congress or DOJ or some commission on truth or reconciliation that will make findings about what the president did and recommendations moving forward. I don't know that that will satisfy 
the hunger that's out there. And I don't know that that will be true accountability, but I also think it's going to be a little difficult to just do nothing, to just say it's over, we're letting it, we're letting it go. There's a separate question of state prosecutors, right? As I said, the Manhattan DA is looking at strictly financial crimes. I think they're mm. going to have the same, the same difficulty um, that I talked about, but to a lesser extent. Um, I think the Manhattan DA doesn't have the institutional concerns that DOJ has. I think they can go after him. But again, if they charge him, it's going to completely overwhelm certainly everything the Manhattan DA does. And by the way, further complicating that, there's a Manhattan DA election a year from now. And it's and it looks like Cy Vance, the current DA, is he doesn't seem to be doing fundraising. Um, it looks like he's probably not going to run again. So you have that political overlay. So I think it's a little bit of a different calculus when you're looking at your state authorities and whether they charge him uh, criminally. In a way, I would probably fear that more if I was the president than, than the feds, because I think the case will be more of a paper case, more of just, hey, here's the financials. They're fraudulent. Um, and it will be a little bit less politically charged, probably in a good way for, for all of us, if it comes from the state authorities rather than DOJ. Yeah, I agree. I think it would it would at least be a lot harder to argue with. And you know what I find funny about that is that there's nothing that Trump would rather see than President Bar former President Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton prosecuted and jailed. Right. right. Um, but I don't get the sense that Joe Biden has any interest in spending the first couple of years of his administration basically elevating Donald Trump to this yep. this fight. I want to just really focus on the next couple months here. Sure. Let's say. Biden gets elected. I think in a typical election, that would mean that the next few months are a quiet, lame duck period as we transition to a new administration. Something tells me this is not going to be so quiet, whether it's the president firing uh, FBI director Christopher Wray, uh, as he signaled uh, he intends to do, uh, or pushing the Justice Department to investigate his opponents. What do you think the next couple of months in American government is going to look like? Oh, it's going to be chaos. I mean, I'll tell you a couple of things I'm looking for. Uh, one is it'll just be pardon Palooza. I mean, he is, he, look, the, let me first start by saying this. There seems to be a little bit of an impression out there that the president loses some of his powers once he's, uh, once he's been, you know, lost the election and is a lame duck. Not at all. He doesn't lose a single legal or constitutional power. He still has the pardon power. And look, every, virtually every president has issued uh, a spate of pardons in their last days or last day in office. And by the way, if he, if the president issues uh, pardons that we don't like that are, that are gross in the last couple months, he won't be the first. I mean, Bill Clinton on his final day in office pardoned his own half brother, yep. uh, Roger Clinton, and he pardoned Mark Rich, who was a fugitive uh, billionaire who, and the SDNY, my old office actually ended up investigating that pardon to see if it was potentially bribery. They didn't end up bringing charges. But look, he's going to pardon, I'm sure, Michael Flynn. I'm sure he's going to pardon Michael uh, Paul Manafort and George Papadopoulos, even though the latter two have already served their time, just to make a point, just as a final you know, uh, uh, finger in the eye of Robert Mueller. Um, he's, he's, I believe, going to likely pardon his family members, uh, Donald Trump Jr., people who've been involved in running the Trump organization. Now, that will not cover them for state charges, but... It will cover them for federal charges. So I guess you'd rather have some coverage than none. And one of the fascinating questions is, will he pardon himself or attempt to pardon himself? We don't know the answer to whether that's lawful or constitutional because no one's ever tried it. It's never come up. Um, <laughs> look, on the face of it, it seems like he can do it. I mean, the Constitution does not place any explicit limitation on a self-pardon. On the other hand, 
it's definitely not what our framers anticipated or wanted, right? I mean, they hated and abhorred uh, abhorred self-dealing, um, and that is the ultimate form of self-dealing. So watch for pardons, watch for firings, like you said, Chris Ray. I mean, the interesting thing about Chris Ray is the FBI director by law serves a 10-year term. I mean, James Comey was fired before that, and Chris Ray is a couple of years in. Um, look, Joe Biden actually has the ability, if he wants, to hire him right back in January. I think he should. I think Chris Ray has shown himself to be really independent and strong. I don't know that Biden will do that. I mean, it sort of leaves the job wide open to somebody of Biden's first preference. So, um, you know, could, could he fire um, Dr. Fauci? Legally, probably not, because Dr. Fauci is not in a political position, so to speak. Um, and the president cannot directly fire your non-political, like I was, like a, like a you know, a line level prosecutor. Um, you know, could, could he fire Gina Haspel? Sure. Um, so I, I think that could all happen. Look, he also could issue executive orders. He also could try to undo some of the, you know, he's already tried it with DACA um, unsuccessfully, but he could issue executive orders enacting his legislative preferences, which will be a headache for the Biden administration to unwind and undo. So I would look for all of that. I think that's all potentially in play here. My, my last question, if we do get a Biden administration, just speaking about executive orders for a second, do you think that one of the first mandates of a Biden administration would be to try and undo some of the executive orders that were hallmarks of the Trump administration, like the travel ban? Yes. Um, and do you think it's going to be, is that an easy process? Like does the, does the Biden administration come in and basically just start dismantling all of these executive orders that the Trump administration passed? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, I think very, very quickly, the Biden administration, if we get one, will, um, will, undo the travel ban, will try to undo Trump's undoing of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the Dreamers, um, and, and I think other, other executive orders that the president has issued relating to whether it's environmental uh, policies or things like that. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. The Trump administration, through its sheer incompetence, has actually shown us that you cannot automatically repeal your predecessor's executive orders. DACA is the case. Obama did DACA, President Obama did DACA through executive order. He couldn't get it through Congress, so he issued an executive order. And the Trump people just came in and said, well, we hereby repeal it. What President Obama put it in, we're, we're president now, we can get rid of it. And the Supreme Court actually said, generally, you. this is why they lost it. The Supreme Court said, generally, you can undo a prior executive order, but you have to do it through proper procedures. It's not that hard. You have to just basically do some paperwork and do some notice and comment and cross some T's and dot some I's. It's called the Administrative Procedure Act. And any competent administration could go through that and get it done. The Trump people just sort of tried to say, can't we just hit delete? And the Supreme Court said no. And if you remember, the Supreme Court rejected the Trump, the Trump administration's effort to undo DACA. But they also said, you can do if you do this right, you can do this. So like, it's like when a teacher gives you an incomplete grade on your on your on a lousy term paper and said, I'm not going to grade this right now. You did a crappy job. But if you fix it, I'll, I'll reconsider it. And of course, the Trump administration has not done that. Maybe they will try to do that in their last uh, couple months in office. Um, I do think that when we get the uh, Biden administration taking over, they will seek to undo some of the Trump administration's executive orders. And I think the Biden administration will be more competent, just governmentally and bureaucratically competent. And I think they will be able to cross the T's and dot the I's and, and get that done in compliance with the Administrative Procedures Act in a way that will stand up in the courts. 
All right, Elliot, we will end it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, glad to, glad to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. ...or Spotify, and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Ellie Honig on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.